Thank you for listening to City Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit us at borocitychurch.com. That's B-O-R-O, citychurch.com. Additionally, if this podcast has been an encouragement to you, would you please email us to let us know? You can email us at sermons at borocitychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Trevor. I'm one of the elders here at City Church. Nice to be with you. Um, Ted and Georgiana, which I'm pretty sure are made-up names uh, to protect the innocent, but those are the names that I was given to use, and so I use them. Ted and Georgiana uh, were living a pretty happy life. Uh, They had three young girls, Anna, Paige, and Jane. Uh, They both had good jobs. They had a great relationship with God. Um, They had a good church, or part of a good church. On May 13th, 2011, their infant daughter, Jane, had a relatively small accident. She tipped backwards in her high chair, and she hit the back of her head on their hardwood floor. Now, uh, Georgiana is a trained pediatric uh, uh, nurse and, uh, with, who was there with her nurse practitioner sister, and they both picked Jane up off the floor, and they assessed her injuries Um, And they both agreed that she was showing no sign of lasting injury, and it looked like there was no problem. Three days later, at Jane's regularly scheduled yearly pediatric checkup, Georgiana told their doctor what had happened to Jane. So the doctor decided, well, we should take some x-rays, take a look at, just make sure there's no further damage. So they took the x-rays, and they noticed that uh, that Jane, rather the, the baby, had a skull fracture, but there were still no other complications. So Georgiana and Ted thanked God for protecting their daughter, and they moved on from it. Well, a week later, Georgiana was at home alone with her daughters, and there was a knock at the door, and she opened it to find police detectives and child protective services at the door. See, a new doctor at the hospital had reviewed Jane's x-rays, and based on looking at the x-ray alone and the kind of injury that was sustained, had reported to child services a case of, quote, severe child abuse. Now, since Jane was under 12 months old, the accusation alone automatically qualified the investigation as uh, as a criminal case immediately. That meant that all three of their girls were removed from their home and placed in protective custody of the state, even though there was absolutely no evidence of past or present abuse in any of the kids. There were no risk factors in their family. There weren't any previous injuries of any other kind to their kids. Every medical professional who actually examined Jane and spoke with the family had completely ruled out the possibility of abuse. In spite of all that, Ted and Georgiana were not allowed to live with their girls and could only see them under supervised visitation. This went on for nine months. I want you to listen to what Georgiana says about this. She said, I will never forget the first night away from our daughters. I was raging, crying out to God, screaming in agony. Then something powerful happened. A calmness and warmth spread through me. I was suddenly aware that God was right there holding me, raging with me at the injustice, weeping with us, his children. In that moment, I had never felt more protected in my life. Georgiana would go on to say that the nine months that followed weren't always filled with that same peacefulness. There was outrage. There was the stress of knowing that, that she, every day that she was apart from her kids was time that she couldn't get back. There were the financial pressures that came with legal fees and medical bills and counseling, all during a time that Georgiana was not allowed to work because you can't be a pediatric nurse while you are being investigated for severe child abuse. She says that during the day, she would wrestle with God, brooding at him when he didn't make things right, right now on that day. She was weary of waiting for the truth to prevail. But still, in the evenings, she says, she would again experience a deep, peaceful awareness of God's presence and protection. And it grounded her 
It recharged her and it gave her strength to fight through another day. Listen to Georgiana again. She says, most of the time, I accepted the courage God was giving me to handle these daily challenges. Other times, I crumbled under the pressure. Over time, I learned that God didn't mind how strong or weak I was on any given day. He was the same. This was the true miracle. Listen to this. This was the true miracle. That my family lived and survived in the fiery furnace with God's provision, not that God ultimately rescued us from it. I first read Ted and Georgiana's story a couple of years ago. It was in a book that I read on pain and suffering, and I didn't remember any other story from the book. But for some reason, this one stuck with me. I think it's because I so identified with that last paragraph that the true miracle of suffering is not that God rescues us from it right now. It's that we make it through the suffering with him right by our side. As someone who has walked through the valley of the shadow of death, um, who's held my dying son in my arms, who's heard the words that every husband dreads, I'm leaving you, I felt the anger that Georgiana talks about. I've screamed in agony, literally. I've raged and cried out to God. But I've also had that calmness and warmth the sense of protection, the relief that God stayed the same even when I changed, even when I wavered. I can honestly tell you when I look back at that suffering that I would echo Georgiana's comment that the thing I'm most amazed at is not that the Lord healed me or my marriage, and certainly my son is still dead, so that's not healed. But the thing I look back at that I'm amazed at is that his presence was with me through the suffering. A few weeks ago, former pastor and theologian uh, Rob Bell was on a speaking tour through the Bible Belt. In case you don't know who Rob Bell is. Several years ago, uh, he walked away from any sort of historical orthodox theology. Um, It was a bit too uh, boring for him. At the end of one of his speaking engagements in this tour a few months ago, he opened up a question and answer for the audience. And a young man in the audience raised his hand and told Rob Bell that he was struggling with his faith because a doctor had recently told he and his pregnant wife that the child they were awaiting probably would not survive the birth. And so the man asked Bell if he was wrong for being angry at God. Rob Bell told him that there are lots of people like him, that they don't want to abandon their faith, but they have questions that, quote, the traditional church can no longer answer. He told the man that he couldn't give him easy answers. But he did tell him to avoid people who tried to comfort him with Scripture, particularly Romans 8.28, and tell him that his loss is somehow a part of God's mysterious will. This is what he said. Put the quote up. Anyone who quotes Romans and says it's all a part of a plan, they can't walk with you. Look for people who will be present with you and offer you solidarity, I'm with you, not solutions. Here's how your suffering works out. He said he would return to Atlanta in the years ahead and that, the, that he and this man would meet again. It's funny how sovereign Rob Bell starts to sound, huh? And somehow things, this is what he said, somehow he told this man, somehow things will be better for you. And then he says to the man, all the best to you. It's interesting, Rob Bell says, don't let people give you answers from Scripture about suffering, but it doesn't seem that Rob Bell is against answers as much as he's against Scripture. After all, he told the man that somehow things would be better for him. You know what that is? It's an answer. It's a solution. 
But how does he know? How can he promise that? How can he promise he's going to be Atlanta in two years? With all due respect to Rob Bell, solidarity and solutions are not mutually exclusive. We can be with others in suffering at the same time we offer them the hope that Scripture gives them. Because God is with us in suffering even as he gives us answers to it. My question to you is this today. What is more deeply beautiful in those two stories I told you? Georgiana's confession of a nearness with God even as she raged and wavered? Or Rob Bell's somehow things will get better? Today in this passage from the Gospel of Mark, I hope to show you that solidarity and solutions are not mutually exclusive. In other words, you can have solutions and solidarity at the same time. You can be with people and give answers at the same time. In fact, I would propose that anyone who wants to walk in solidarity with you in suffering without a solution, though well-meaning, are simply the blind leading the blind. The best they can do is offer a vague, all the best to you, and in a couple of years, it'll work out. Likewise, we, when we, the church, offer people solutions to suffering that's disconnected from our presence, we are very much rejecting the name we've been given, the body of Christ. So let me show you the body of Christ work in Mark 6 today. If you don't have a Bible, those Bibles, we have a Bible's available. It's our free gift to you. When you leave today, you just pick it up and take it, write your name in it, and then we would hope that you would go and read that and ask questions as you encounter God in Scriptures. In the meantime, this verse will be on the screen. Mark 6, verse 45 through 52. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to the Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Remember, he's just done the, the miracle of the bread and the fish where he's fed 5,000 people, okay? And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he, Jesus, was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. No big deal. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. That's the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 6. Now, whenever I speak about suffering, and I, I speak about suffering every week, really, because the Bible does, but in particular, where we're going to be this focused on the idea of suffering today, I want to acknowledge something. I want to acknowledge three different kinds of people that are in the room today, okay? And we're all coming in here from different experiences, okay? Here's the first one. Some of us haven't really suffered much yet. Like if I were to ask you to write down what's the worst thing that ever happened to you, you would write down like, oh, this one time I got grounded for a week, okay? And so some of us have not experienced suffering. And that doesn't make you less. It's just, it's just where you are in your life. It's what God has sovereignly decided to bring or not bring into your life. And some of you are, if you're in that position, you may hear this today and say, uh, duh, God is with us in suffering. You know, that's like Christianity 101. Then some of us have been through suffering, like, and, and we, we've, we've come through it, and we're not in a place of that deep, dark spot, but we've actually seen the Lord's presence and his triumph in suffering, and we just nod and ride along with Georgiana. Yes, 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 yes. But some of us, the third group, are right in the middle of it. And you're straddling that hard place between anger and sadness and unbelief and yet still trying to hold on to God. Now, my, ne- my aim today is to speak to all three of those groups of people, but especially to those of you who are reeling right now in the middle of suffering. First from this passage, God's solution to suffering is solidarity. You can't separate the solidarity from the solution because that's exactly what the solution is. In a way, 
I understand what Rob Bell is getting at, you know, in, in the depths of pain and suffering, a pat answer like it's all a part of God's plan can feel cold and can feel disconnected from your pain. I, I fully affirm that. I would never, I would hope, walk into a hospital room or stand beside a graveside or sit next to a grieving person and simply say, cheer up, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called, called according to his purpose. At the same time, I also wouldn't say, this will work out, just give it time, all the best to you. Because that fails to offer anything of substance, anything that you can stand on, anything to put your roots into. So I want you to note what Jesus is doing with his disciples in this text that we just read, because it's going to show you one of the primary ways that God intends to use suffering in your life. Okay, let's look at some of the strange facts in this story. Look at verse 45 and 46. Mark writes that Jesus made his disciples get in a boat and go to the other side of the lake. That verb made is exactly what it sounds like. It's forceful. It's like when your parents made you go to school. You didn't want to, but they made you. They forced you. That, that word means to force. It means to put pressure on. Okay? Also, notice Jesus is going up the mountain to pray. In other words, he makes them go away, and then Jesus goes up the mountain to pray. Okay, so here's our first mystery. If Jesus knew that a storm was coming on that lake, why did he send the disciples right into the middle of it? Force them. Push them right into the middle of it. Additionally, wouldn't it have been better, a better thing for their safety and for their spirituality to go up on the mountain with Jesus to pray? Like, you know, in just, in just you know, how do you lead people one-on-one? What should I do? Send them into the storm or bring them into the presence of God to pray with me? You know, God the Son and God the Father. You know, that's pretty easy. It's like, I think over there. They've been in a storm before. They were in a storm two chapters before this. They've done that before. Why not go up on the mountain? Now we have a point of tension. If Jesus loves his disciples, and he does, and Jesus knew this storm was coming, and he did, and Jesus always wants what's best for the kingdom of God and best for his disciples to grow in their faith, and he does, then it must have been more important, at least this time, for his disciples to be on a boat in the middle of a storm instead of on a mountaintop praying with Jesus. But why? Well, for that, we need to take a look at some very specific language that Mark uses in this story. Look at verse 48. When Mark writes that Jesus saw the disciples making headway painfully, the word there, or the two words there, is actually the word for torture or torment. It means that the storm was coming against them so hard, so powerfully, that the sort of rowing they were doing with their oars was so difficult, it was torturous. This is why I think this story in particular is here to teach us something about suffering. Because he talks about the torturous nature of the wind blowing against them and them trying to make headway, trying to go somewhere in the middle of that, of that pain, of that torture. But what in the world is up with that last phrase in verse 48? He meant to pass by them? Isn't that weird? At face value, it seems like Jesus was just intending to sort of moonwalk by the boat and wave at them, you know, while he's on the thing. Or maybe it was like a race, you know, I'm going to give them a head start and then I'll just blow by them like, like one of those lizards that moves their feet real fast and be like, see you suckers, you know. But that phrase, pass by, is something very weird in this story. And anytime you find something weird, it's supposed to clue you in. I need to pay attention to it and figure out what it's doing there, Okay. Remember, we just came off a miracle where Jesus was providing bread for hungry Israelites in the wilderness. So Mark already has us thinking about the book of Exodus. And he's keeping the theme going here. In Exodus 32 and 33, right after Moses goes up the mountain, Moses goes up a mountain to meet God while he leaves Israel behind at the base of the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. Moses comes down off the mountain. Jesus comes down off the mountain. And 
Moses finds the people of Israel have built a golden calf idol and they're worshiping it because they think, remember, they think God has abandoned them. They think, they think God's not coming back. They think Moses is gone and the presence of God is gone. And so when Moses comes down, he finds them worshiping this golden calf. All right. And at that point, Moses intercedes and he goes and he asks God, hey, will you spare them? And God says, okay, I'll spare them. And then Moses, at the end of this interaction with God, he, he talks to God and he, he says, can I see your glory? And in Exodus 33, 19, 33, 22, you'll see this phrase. God says that Moses can't look him in the face, but God says, I will what? Pass by. He says, I'll, I'll pass by you and I'll hide you in a rock and you'll be able to see my glory as it passes by. And notice that God tells Moses that when he will pass by, he will proclaim his name in front of him. Okay? Now, let's jump back to Mark again. Look in 650. Jesus approaches the boat in the storm coming down off the mountain. They all think he's a ghost and they're afraid. So Jesus says, take heart, be courageous. It is I. Literally, this verb is I am. Take courage, I am. Now, in Moses' first encounter with God in the book of Exodus, he meets God in the wilderness, chapter 3, meets God in the wilderness in the form of a burning bush. And God tells him out of that burning bush, he says, I know that my people are in suffering in Egypt in slavery. And he tells Moses, I want you to go in and lead them out. And Moses says, well, if I'm going to go in there, I need to be able to tell the Israelites what your name is. So God says to him, Exodus 33, 14, tell them I am has sent you. I put the wrong verse up there, Shannon. It's in there somewhere. Tell them I am has sent you. My name is, uh, oh, that's supposed to be Exodus three fourteen. That's what's going on. Tell him, I tell them I am, I am who I am. That's, that's his name. Okay. You putting it together yet? Look back at Mark. When Mark writes that Jesus came down off a mountain and went to pass by them, and then he notices their suffering and crying out, and so he says to them, I am the God of Israel in the Old Testament. He's saying that the God of Israel in the Old Testament, the God that rescued Israel out of slavery, that God is Jesus. And he's coming to you again, again in your suffering, again in your crying out, and he is going to lead you out of it. Now, how is God going to do that? Look in verse 51. He gets in the boat with them. That's the how. You see, the solution is the presence. The solution is the solidarity. The solution is the with. Remember in Mark 4, there's a story about the disciples and Jesus on a boat in a storm. And in that story, Jesus tells the storm. He uses his mouth and he tells the storm. He's already on the boat with them, but he says, he tells the storm, be quiet. He uses his word to bring peace. But in this story, he doesn't say anything. In this story, it's not his words that still the storm and bring peace. It is the fact that, as John says, he is the word and just his presence brings peace. When the disciples welcome him onto the boat, the storm goes silent. It is withness with Jesus. It is solidarity with him that is the solution. Now, here's what I'm getting at. When Jesus comes to the disciples and they're suffering here, rowing in torment against this overwhelming power, the way I'm sure Georgiana and Tim felt when their children were unjustly taken from them. The way that man at Rob Bell's event felt when the doctor said, I don't think your baby is going to survive birth. The way the child in foster care feels when she's moved from home to home and not sure if anybody loves her. The way you felt when you were abused and neglected. The way you felt when even though your marriage is crumbling, you still have to get up and somehow go to work the next day, rowing in torment against a wind of pain. Jesus comes in not just getting in the boat, not just bringing his presence, but Jesus comes passing by, declaring a solution, revealing his glory. When you are with me, he says, you are with the great I am. You are with Yahweh. Jesus comes proclaiming his name. 
See, it's not just solidarity you need. You need that solidarity to be with a certain person, with I am, with Jesus, with the Word. Jesus comes declaring the solution. Jesus doesn't just get in the boat. He gets in the boat as he speaks. Don't fear, I am. And when he does so, he is quoting scripture to them as he gets in. And he is retelling the Exodus story in two words. With God, the solution to suffering is solidarity. It is knowing that he is with you. Because don't you see, that's how the whole thing ends up. Like that's where the entire world and universe is headed. That's where it all shakes down, is people with God, God with people, solidarity. Remember what Georgiana said? She said, I was suddenly aware that God was right there holding me, raging with me at the injustice, weeping with us, his children. In that moment, she said, I had never felt more protected in my life. Because Jesus was in the boat. This is what God is often doing with your suffering. He's not bringing you up the mountain with Him into safety. He's sending you into the storm to reveal Himself to you in a way that He never has before. Do not waste your suffering with fear. Pay attention to God passing by and giving you his name. Let him in the boat. Or else you'll find yourself clinging to empty answers like things will work out. You'll seek to hold on to you are instead of holding on to who God is. See, fear tries in suffering, fear tries to change God or change circumstances. Faith lets God change you. It's interesting to me that the disciples have seen Jesus heal people up to this point in Mark. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him feed 5,000 people with loaves and bread. Not to mention they have already been on a boat with him in a storm and watched him bring peace with just a word. It seems like when you see a guy walking on the water after having seen all those things, seems like you see a guy walking on the water in a storm, your first reaction would not be a quote from Scooby-Doo. Roll, raggy, it's a ghost, right? Oh, Scoob, run for it. That's what it sounds like. No, not. It's a ghost. When the disciples say this, they are exposing the fact that circumstances have taken over their understanding of Jesus. Their first reaction to seeing a man walking on the water is not, Jesus is at it again. He's coming to us again. He's providing a way again. He's going to rescue us. Instead, it's, oh no, more suffering. As if the wind wasn't enough, now we've got to deal with Blackbeard's ghost. Notice that this whole story, verse 52, ends with the disciples' hearts being hardened. Isn't that interesting? That's a strange ending to this little story. And Mark says it's because they didn't understand about the loaves, the, the, the miracle that we covered last week, the feeding of the 5,000. So what does that mean, all right? When Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, he was doing the same thing he is doing here. He is revealing himself as God. He is showing that he is salvation. He is showing that he is the better Moses, the better one to lead people out of slavery, that he is the Messiah. But they don't catch it, at least not in the way that they are supposed to. Now, you can read an account of this over in Matthew, just in case there's some cynics out there who really know your Bible. Yes, you can read an account of this in Matthew, where this is the, the account in Matthew. Matthew includes that Peter gets out and walks on the water, and then they all say this must be the Son of God. I know that. I am perfectly aware of that. So was Mark, okay? But Mark is making a different point. 
Mark is highlighting the negative of this situation while Matthew highlights the positive. Yes, they say, you're the son of God, but they don't mean you're the son of God the way Jesus means I'm the son of God. Jesus means I'm the suffering servant son of God who's got to go to a cross. They mean you're the son of God who's the revolutionary warrior who's going to do exactly what everybody else thought back with. That's why it says you don't understand about, about the loaves. Remember last week I told you that was, that was an act of revolution. Everybody was there to see something change, and they thought that Jesus was going to be the big leader who would stand up in front of them. So their confession that Jesus is the Son of God in Matthew, when Peter gets out, walks on the water, and sinks, that is a different sort of thing. Matthew highlights the positive. Mark highlights the negative. That's why Mark is my guy. No, kidding. All right? So I just want to, in case there's some cynics out there that say, oh, yeah, but Matthew says this. See, the Bible contradicts. Never. All right, watch this. That phrase hardened is interesting considering we're talking about so much Exodus language here. Anybody remember, we went through the book of Exodus. I don't remember when, but we've done it, all right? Anybody remember a character in Exodus who was constantly hardened? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. In the story of Exodus, this word is used to describe one of the most evil characters of the entire Old Testament. In fact, the entire Bible, Pharaoh. Pharaoh in Exodus is constantly pitted against Yahweh. And despite seeing miracle after miracle, despite undergoing 10 plagues where Yahweh outdoes the Egyptian gods, Pharaoh's heart doesn't soften, it hardens. Which makes this word very scary here. Pharaoh's heart gets bitter towards God. It gets angry towards God. He fights against God. And it's strange, isn't it? The disciples, despite seeing miracle after miracle that Jesus is doing after this walking on the water and stilling of the storm, they aren't softened, they're hardened. And it's all grounded, Mark is showing us, in their fear. You know what it means to be hardened toward God? One of the things it means is that you are going to believe you are I am, not God. You believe you need your presence to pass in front of God to reveal your glory to him. It's part of what it means to be hardened. It means you need God to change your circumstances according to your will if he wants, if he wants your glory to put your faith in him or to love him. You need God to fix your suffering with a solution that doesn't involve his solidarity with you. It doesn't involve his presence. It's not what you're concerned about. Think about the name of God, I am. God doesn't say I was when he reveals himself. God doesn't say I will be when he reveals himself. He says I am. You know why? Because God doesn't change. He doesn't need to. He is now who he always has been and who he always will be. Yet often when suffering comes our way, our first reaction is to set ourselves in stone and assume that the problem is not in us. And say to God, this is not right that you put me in this position. You better change. You better get your act together and start treating me with some respect. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know I'm a good person and I don't deserve this? Don't you know what I've done for you? There's another guy who said that once. His name is Job, or Job if you haven't been in the Bible much. Job went through terrible suffering. Suffering that, listen, God willingly and knowingly sent him into. Job lost everything but his life. He lost his family, he lost his health. He lost his friends. He lost his wealth. And in the ashes of his life, he is angry with God. But look at something Job says. One of his realizations is God came to reveal himself to Job in his sufferings. Look at this. Job chapter 9. This is very interesting. Job chapter 9. Look at verse, we'll read 2 through 4 first. Truly, Job says, I know that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Look, who has hardened himself against God and succeeded? Now, on same chapter, on down. Look at verse 8 and verse 11 through 12. God, he alone stretched out the heavens and what? Trampled the waves of the sea. 
Now, we're not done yet. Look at verse 11 and 12. Behold, he what? Passes by me and I don't see him. It's a ghost. He moves on. But I don't perceive him. He snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? You think Mark knew Job 9? See what Job says? He learns that hardening your heart against God, trying to change who God is, is unsuccessful. God walks on the waves. God passes by me and I don't see him. I can't say to God, what are you doing? I can't try to change him because he is who he is. This is all the language Mark is using. Hardened, trampling the waves, passing by but not seen. Job's message to us here is that in our fear, we will try and change God, but he's warning you it doesn't work. Hardening is not successful. So maybe we just wait it out until our circumstances change. That's another way to go. But did you notice that there was no peace in this storm until after Jesus got in the boat? In other words, the circumstances didn't change, and then they were all like, great, Jesus, come in. In the middle of the storm, Jesus had to be welcomed into the boat. Not to mention that Jesus sent the disciples purposely into this storm, which means Jesus wasn't wanting to reveal himself to them by stopping the storm. He was revealing himself to them by coming to them while the storm was still raging. Jesus didn't want their circumstances to change. He put them in these circumstances. So here we go. It's process of elimination. If God's not going to change, I am. And God is not always looking to make the circumstances of our suffering change. There's only one more variable. Me. It's you. It's me in suffering while fear tries to change God or change circumstances. While you hold on to who you are, I'm not changing. I'm in the right. Faith, trusting God, requires us to change. Now, what does that mean? Well, it could mean a million things. million ways that God wants to change you. Sometimes you're so consumed by your own sin, like you're just, you just far away from God and pushing him away from God, that God sends you into storms to wake you up, to bring you to repentance. It's very true. Sometimes it's not like that at all, though. Sometimes you've just sort of passively become comfortable with your life, and without even really knowing it, you've just kind of shifted your faith from God as your source, as your provision. You know, you, you've stopped thinking about him as your king and as your highest treasure, and you're just kind of well, sitting in peaceful waters. You're just in a routine. You're not really giving a whole lot of thought to how precious and powerful and life-giving God is. And so the wind starts blowing against you. It happened to me. There were about six months between the time that my wife said that she wanted to leave me. And the moment my son died. And right towards the end of that six-month period, things were great. My wife was pregnant. Our marriage had been healed. We had everything that we wanted from God. And I was leading a group of uh, of students that summer, college students that summer, and I remember one of the one of the classes that I taught them, uh, I think, was on suffering, and I I just remember telling them because I was thinking back to this the six month period that I had been in with my wife, where my marriage was in question. I didn't know how that was going to end up. I didn't know if 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 
God would heal that. I didn't know if she, she really loved me. And, and I remember thinking back to that about five and a half months removed from it and thinking, and I told the students this. I said, I, I never want to repeat that period of suffering in my life. I never want to do that again. But I told them there is something that I miss about the presence of God. And it's not that I don't have it when things were going really well. You absolutely do. God's there. He's with you. But there is something about what God taught me and the reliance that he pushed me into and that sweet warmth of his presence in those very tangible, heartbreaking circumstances that I told those students I missed. And two weeks later, my son breathed his last breath in my arms. You know, Georgiana said that before her daughter's head hit the hardwood and cracked her skull, she said they were walking closely with God. In most ways, just like Job, they had so many blessings in their life and they were faithfully trusting God. Yet still, there was change that God wanted to bring in. You, you understand that? God doesn't just want to change you when you're super, super sinful. Sometimes God wants to change you. You're holding his hand. You're walking right along with him. He's not finished with you. Look what she said. She said, my family and I are humbly grateful for the suffering our father endured with us. Without it, we would be comfortably living our old normal instead of courageously. That's what Jesus asked them to do, take courage. Courageously living our new normal. When God sends you into suffering, it's not because he's trying to punish you. It's not necessarily because there's some great egregious sin in your life. When God sends you into suffering, it is to change you, to give you a revelation of his presence that though you are in agony, though you wrestle and cry out, that he is with you and intent on bringing you closer out of the old and into a new normal, into a new layer of faith, into a new sphere of trusting him, into a new experience of his love. There's only one reason that you can be sure of that. That God's not trying to punish you with suffering, but to change you and bring you closer. And that's because Jesus is the solution to suffering because he lost solidarity with his father. When Rob Bell told that father who was waiting for a stillborn son that he didn't need people who would quote Romans with him to walk with him, right? I think Rob Bell forgot what Romans is about. And I think Rob Bell forgot who the Romans were. I think he forgot that the early church in Rome, what they, were, what, what they were experiencing when Paul wrote this letter to them, I think he forgot that they were being executed, they were being tortured, they were, they were experiencing unjust suffering because of their association with Christ. But the Apostle Paul, when he couldn't be with them, wrote them a letter full of solutions. And here's the verse in particular that Rob Bell said that man didn't need. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Rob Bell thought that verse was an affront to that man's suffering rather than a comfort. That it seemed cliche or campy. But if that's the way you read Romans 8.28, I fear you are forgetting the fact that it is this verse that comforted people whose mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, friends and neighbors were being torn apart by lions and burned alive. I think Rob Bell is an affront to the early church. The promise that God will work all things together even our suffering, even our bad things for those who are called according to his purpose, so that he'll work them together for good, 
That's not an offense to you. As long as Paul's got something to base it on. So how can he write that? Because if there's not some truth, if there's not some real solution, if there's not something concrete underneath, then Rob Bell is right. It is just a cliche. But this passage in Mark tells us how. It's interesting. In every instance, in every instance that this passage points to Exodus that I've mentioned today, the burning bush, going up the mountain to meet God, asking to see God's glory and God passing by, every time you read in Exodus that those things pop up, there are warnings. Don't come close, God says. Stay away. Take your, feet off. Take your, uh, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. Bow. Get down on the floor. Don't touch the mountain. You'll die. But this time, when Jesus passes his glory by and proclaims his name, he doesn't have to hide the disciples in the cleft of the rock. Instead, he says, don't be afraid. And says, he says, take heart, take courage. And then he gets in the boat with them. This time I am gets in the boat. You know how? There are only three times in Mark, in the book of Mark, that Mark writes, that Mark writes about Jesus praying. Only three. Each prayer, one is in Mark chapter one, one is right here, and one is in Mark chapter 14. Each prayer that Mark writes that Jesus pray is prayed at night in the darkness and in a lonely place by himself. Each time it finds him separating himself from the disciples and leaving them alone. Each time the disciples fail to understand the mission that Jesus has been preaching to them. They're disconnected from it. Their hearts are hardened toward it. Each time Jesus is in a dark, wrestling place with God. The last one in Mark 14. So you have, you have one, you have one in the front, one in the middle, one at the end. By the way, Mark, as you look at it as a book, can be divided just into that. There's, there's the first part about Jesus' divinity. There's this, there's this little middle part. And then there's the end part that's all about his suffering. You have prayer, prayer, prayer. Darkness, darkness, darkness. Alone, alone, alone. The last one is in the garden of Gethsemane just before he's crucified. And Jesus is wrestling with his mission. Jesus is wrestling with the call to go to the cross. He's deciding whether he should go forward with it. He's calling out to his father to make another way. He's in suffering. But when he cries out, Father, there's no answer, and he simply has to resolve, your will be done. Not my will, but yours. Even though he's I am. And in the garden, you see him pulling apart from his father. And on the cross, you would have the finality of it because now he no longer says father. Now he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's no answer. There's no solution this time. He's losing his solidarity with the Father. The Son is losing his connection with the Father. And he doesn't deserve it. Remember in the passage in Jonah that Mark is riffing off of here? Jonah, uh, I'm sorry, uh, not Jonah, Job. There's tons about Jonah in here, but I cut that. Remember when Job said, who has hardened himself against the Lord and succeeded? Well, because Jesus was never hardened against the Father and died for us on a cross, now the answer to that question is me. Who's hardened himself against the Lord and succeeded? I have. If you're in Christ, you have. We've sinned. We've been hard-hearted against God. We've been our own I am's and asked him to change. Yet Jesus, isn't it interesting that Jesus, even though his disciples are hardened, he sticks with them? The next one, he's there on the shore and, and healing people. He doesn't send them away right then. Ah, oh, your hearts are hard. He sticks with them. You know what this means? 
it means that no suffering that comes against us can separate us from him. We've already hardened ourselves, and he stuck with us. Now, we don't have a guarantee about how our current circumstances will work out in the particulars. No, I don't have an answer for that. I don't have a solution for that. But we know because of what Christ did for us on a cross that none of our suffering is wasted. Here's the way the great Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards put it. This way he put Romans 8, 28. Our bad things turn out for good because of Christ. Because, because when we hardened ourselves against God, Jesus switched places with us and he became separated from the Father, the unhardened, so that the hardened could be close to him. He says our bad things turn out for good. Our good things can never be lost. And the best things are yet to come. In other words, Jonathan Edwards said the same thing Rob Bell did, except Jonathan Edwards was reading the Bible and pulling it from the Bible. Rob Bell was saying what made a guy feel good in a moment. Through the cross and the resurrection, through Jesus suffering in our place, bringing us permanently into the presence of God, we now can actually say to each other with full conviction, in Christ, all the best to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, suffering is... Not just difficult, sometimes it feels impossible. Yet somehow, you, the great I am, in every one of those, in Jesus Christ, in every one of those wrestling moments where Jesus went up the mountain to pray to you, just as I'm praying to you now. And he wrestled with his mission and what you were calling him to. And he so wanted to cling to you at the same time. He wanted to bring us in. Not lose a single one that the Father had entrusted to him. He had his own crisis with suffering. But the choice he was making was to give in and change his circumstances or to suffer to bring about our salvation. And he chose to suffer to bring about salvation. And so now, because of Christ in our suffering, when we have to make the choice to make a temporary decision to temporarily soothe ourselves or to endure suffering to bring about the glory, your glory in other people's lives, your glory in our own lives, to see you, to have our relationship with you taken to a deeper, uh, a fuller experience of your presence with us. I pray, Father, that because we know Christ did that for us, that we would take heart and that we would courageously endure the storm knowing that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. Father, all of our bad things will turn out for good. None of our good things will be lost. And all of the best things are yet to come. For those who love you and are called according to your purpose. In Jesus' name.